All right, we come to Hebrews chapter 10 tonight. I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there. We're in three weeks into our series on hope in dark places. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be there in just a moment. We'll start reading in verse 26. If you're just starting to be with us, the theme of this month has been called Hope in Dark Places, looking at passages of Scripture that have tended to bring the most fear into the hearts of believers or perhaps be the biggest stumbling blocks depending on how they're interpreted. And tonight we are diving into a passage that uh, virtually every time if we were to name off lists of passages that we get nervous to read, that would be one of them that would come up. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, we'll be there in just a moment. I went to college at UNC Asheville. You can see here a picture of Mills Hall. Uh, We're not too far from Mills Home, so it wasn't Mills Home, it was Mills Hall up in Asheville. If you could see all the way through those windows there at the top, you'd see a meeting room, a common meeting room for that building, and that was the location of several of the Bible studies for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Now, as that room was on campus and it was pre-September 11th when, uh, you know, some of this was going on and people weren't really into security and some of those things yet, there were actually several groups from the community and from local churches that would often come in and use different rooms in the school, sometimes with the hope of infiltrating uh, some of those student organizations and seeing if they could round up anybody to come to their church or various things. One night, one of our ladies' Bible studies mixed with another group from another church who, since they were missing some people, asked if they could come and join. And as they came to join, they began to try to lead the Bible study there because they were older than some of the ladies that were there. And the Bible study began this way. The leader would start by saying, my name is so-and-so, and by God's grace, I haven't sinned since February 5th, 1986. And around the room, they would go. God bless our poor ladies, some of them only having been believers for a short time, thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself into? And a strange Bible study developed that night over very differing beliefs over whether the people in the room were still sinners or not. Well, spoiler alert, we all are. And so uh, if, if you're looking for that church tonight, you haven't found it. And so um, I want to be able to look at a passage of Scripture because I don't think there's anything more discouraging that we could possibly think than somehow either trying to convince ourselves or lie ourselves into believing that we don't sin, that we don't need the grace of God anymore. I think I told you a couple weeks ago about Constantine, the Roman emperor who wanted to become a Christian but had the superstition because some did at the time that once you got saved, you only got one sin after that. And so he didn't get baptized until he was on his deathbed because that was about the right amount of time he thought I might just be able to pull it off. You know, no matter what happens, we we tend to be people who will read in, and, and for this passage, very understandably, we have a hard time believing that Jesus' offer of the gospel is as good as it is. There has to be some way that we must have to meet him halfway. The gospel is we couldn't meet him halfway. We couldn't even take one step towards him. He came and found us, and he's the one who rescued us. And it's up to us to receive the free gift that he offers, but while we take a passage that has an amount of warning to it tonight, I hope it will be an encouragement because thankfully it does not teach what some throughout history have believed that it did. 
And I hope tonight, if this has been a passage you've wrestled with, uh, that, um, that there'll be some encouragement for you. Uh, and yeah, I, I just, if, you're, if, you, if you disagree with me, you can send me an email or something later. And so, but I think I'm standing with most Baptists uh, here as well and a lot of great, great amount of Christians as well. I want to, as we dive into Hebrews 10 in just a moment, I've got some things on your handout there tonight for some context, because if you remember your literature classes from a while back, you probably remember the phrase, context is key. When we recognize that Hebrews 10 is 10 chapters in to a letter that has been communicating a number of things so far, it is helpful for us to remember that context in reading it correctly. When I was a youth pastor, I remember leading a series with students on different cults and religious sects. Now, it was a few minutes into the lesson when I finally told them that that word was spelled S-E-C-T-S. And so you can imagine the looks that I was getting for most of that first 10 minutes. We can use similar language and be completely misunderstood if we're not careful. And so when we look at the book of Hebrews, we have to remember that the primary audience was not 21st century Southern Baptists in High Point, North Carolina. Though it has much, a great deal to say to us, and it is just as authoritative for us as it was for those original intended audience if we'll read it correctly in the context it was given. And so the context of Hebrews 10, the first line I've got there for you, must be understood within the overall theme of the book of Hebrews. Then I've given you kind of a little sub-point here, which is longer than the main point. I'm not sure if that gets me uh, demerits or not, but it's what I've got there. Hebrews, as a reminder, is written to Jewish believers as an argument for Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and an urging to continue in their faith in Jesus instead of abandoning their faith and going backwards into Judaism. You ladies who are involved in Hebrew studies right now, I know there's a great many of you that if I was to sit here and ask you to define sort of uh, headings for every kind of topic you have studied in the book of Hebrews, many of you would have a great many things that you could say and you would be right for me trying to express the narrative of the book of Hebrews into two sort of camps. That seemed to me the, the most succinct way to say that the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand that Jesus is the answer to every promise that was ever made in the Old Testament, that he has fulfilled every office, he has accomplished every task, that every prophecy has come true. He has become the sacrifice that now showed the full extent of what was promised only in the shadows of lambs and, and other animals that were brought forward for sacrifice. That Jesus has come to be shown to be the fulfillment of all of those things and also an urging to continue in their faith in Jesus instead of abandoning that faith and going backwards into Judaism. At the time of great persecution, particularly during the first three centuries of Christianity, these persecutions would come in waves and what you would find is you didn't normally have high attendance Sundays when there was a persecution going on. It led the faithful into greater faithfulness and it led those who were on the fringes sometimes to leave the fellowship. 
And so the Hebrews, as one group of that, were a group that were saying, you know, my life was a whole lot easier when I didn't yet believe in Jesus because I didn't have to be a part of any of these persecutions that are taking place. Maybe I can just go backwards and go back to the way things were before. I can go back to the Old Testament law. I can go back to doing things the way Moses commanded us to do it. If I can just move backwards, my life will get a whole lot easier. And so the writer of Hebrews is explaining to them, you cannot go backwards when you're rejecting the fulfillment of everything you have ever known from what God has said from the very beginning. And so don't take lightly this idea that you can just somehow move in between either one. And so he's writing once again to, uh, to those that are within the context of the Hebrew church, those Jewish believers who are wrestling with these different pieces of things to say, uh, you can... Uh, you need to continue in your faith and do not abandon uh, your faith and go backwards into Judaism. Last week, or two weeks ago rather, we looked at Hebrews chapter 6, another passage that's often coupled with Hebrews 10. And uh, I'll say this, these two points that are here on your page. Number one, while the author uses very similar language, the author of Hebrews, to what we think of as Christian vocabulary, that language often refers to the Old Testament teaching not Christian practices. You might remember from Hebrews 6, language like washings, laying on of hands. We naturally think of that as Christian practices. For the Jews that are being written to, no, they're reading that in the way that washings, ceremonial washings, laying on of hands in the sacrificial system, the doctrine of the Messiah, who he was going to be, all these things need to be seen through the lens of the Hebrew people thinking of these words in the context they'd always known them. And so likewise, when we come to Hebrews 10 today, we are also going to see that at play. And we'll have to read this with an understanding of, uh, of the author's intention for how we are to see these terms and these words. And also what you see in Hebrews 6 is that the overarching sin discussed in these passages is usually unbelief or rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah. The overarching sin is unbelief or rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah. There's a walking away from faith to walk backwards into something and someone else. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to help them understand there is no way backwards when you have understood the message of how God has fulfilled all that he's ever said. And if you reject his fulfillment, you can't go backwards and then go back to the shadows that point forward to him. Uh, you have rejected all of it. And so we come then to Hebrews 10. Once again, like last week, you may be saying, Jonathan, can we just get to the passage? Well, here we go. Jonathan, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin with verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I can remember sitting with a man in a community not too far away who had isolated himself from every human being and adopted a very strange uh, set of practices in his life to where, if y'all, whatever communities you grew up in, you probably had somebody that walked along the street that you said, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. He might do this or he might do that. I remember for years in Winston-Salem, around the area where I grew up in, uh, there was a lady who often rode a bicycle and she had a baby doll with her and everywhere you went in town, if you saw her, you knew who she was. She was well known just for some of the things that she, you know, just that that's who people remembered seeing. This man was somebody who also would walk along the road. He lived a very isolated life. He had very few relationships with anybody, but he did get fired up about several political things that might happen. And when that happened, he would go around to area churches. And I remember sitting in my office with him one day, and as he started to go down a path that I said, I really don't think this is healthy where you're going. He said, well, Hebrews 10 says that if anyone sins deliberately, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins that is left. And we began to talk, but as that passage was so ingrained in his mind, perhaps from any number of years, what he had come to believe in that is if I willfully sin again, my salvation is lost. And the way in which he then painted his life was to have no relationships, to have no standard of living that matched the culture in any way out of fear to say there's no way that I can possibly keep this unless I live a life that is so abandoned from the world that I can't even be involved in the world anymore. Now, most of us haven't gone that far, but more than likely at any point in your Christian life, you may have encountered this passage and thought, boy, that's hard teaching. If anyone sins deliberately, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins uh, that is left. There's, there's no longer a sacrifice that's there. Thankfully, this passage is teaching something different than we might first be prone to take it as we look at that. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. The first point that's on your sheet tonight to bring us back into the context of Hebrews is this. The Mosaic, and that simply means the system that God delivered through Moses for the people, the Mosaic system offered no forgiveness for deliberate sin, especially after rejecting that system's fulfillment, Jesus. Let's go backward to the Mosaic system for just a moment. If you were to read Old Testament law, you would see that there was a high standard for ways in which uh, the Israelites could be purified from various sins. And there was a very clear distinction at times between what someone has done accidentally versus what that person has done willfully, that they meant to do something wrong. 
And so the outline for what forgiveness would look like for that person at times was offered in different ways than for the non-intentional sin. And at other times, there wasn't a clear pathway to forgiveness without uh, quite a, a road to, of repentance to go down. And so there's a way in which we see that um, in this passage, once again in the Hebrew context, this kind of language is coming up. And when people hear this term, sinning deliberately, they would have been brought backward to the Mosaic law, which they understood. And so I believe it's really important then for the second point to go ahead and drive home this as well. Verses 25 and 26 are not about a Christian who passes their sin threshold and loses their salvation. It's about a person who abandons Christ in order to find salvation in someone or something else which offers no eternal hope. To reject the Lamb of God in order to move backward to the lambs of Israel is a hopeless cause. For anyone who sins deliberately, and so the writer of Hebrews, if you'll lift your eye just a bit to the verses that have come before, you'll see a, phrase, a verse you've probably heard before. You know, every kid in Sunday school learns what verse? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. When I was a kid, I never got to learn, fathers, do not exasperate your children. I never got to go home and quote that to my dad. Now, you've probably heard Hebrews 10, 25 before. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the calling of people to remember, don't abandon the Christian community. Don't abandon your faith. Don't abandon the verse before it, verse 24, stirring up one another up to, to good works. Don't, don't abandon the calling of the Christian life. And it's in that context then that verse 26 comes. For if anyone sins deliberately, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so if you're going to remove yourself from Christian community and not just that, from understanding and, and faith in Jesus, what you're saying is I'm going back to Mosaic law from Christ. Well, guess what? When you go backward, there is no longer any sacrifice that is available for you through that system for sinning deliberately. And you're sinning deliberately when you're choosing to walk away from Jesus based on persecution or whatever it might be. And so when you sin deliberately in that sense, they're not saying you've used up all your sins and there's no more sacrifice in Jesus. They're saying if you're going to try to go somewhere besides Jesus, you're going to find nothing. There's no sacrifice that is left for sins at that point. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I don't know if any of you have a, a heading in your Bible over you know, this passage. I've got a heading in my ESV Bible over verse 19, and it says, the full assurance of faith. <laughs> now, I think that heading's appropriate, but for a lot who come to verse 26, they would say, I don't know that this is about assurance, but it actually is. In the context of everything, the assurance that's being driven home is in Christ, there is life, and outside of Christ, you had better be warned that there's no other path. You will find nothing else, no other balm for your soul to get you through what you need. And so someone who would move backwards and to say, I want to go back to the sacrificial system. I want to go back to making sacrifices in this way because it will lead perhaps to an easier life or it will be more culturally acceptable or whatever it may be. 
The writer said, well, while your sacrifices may look really good here to the people who are around you, may they, they might seem something familiar, you need to recognize those sacrifices aren't a cover for your sin. Because unlike the people of Israel who looked forward to Christ, you have met and heard and known. Remember Hebrews 6, that you've tasted of the heavenly gift, that the power of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the truth of Jesus Christ has been given to you. And if in that you would say, nope, then it's impossible. If, if Christ is not good enough for you, having understood who he was, seen the working of the Holy Spirit, what else do you want? What, what is there going to be that comes along that's not going to bring you there? John chapter 12, this morning I got a chance to speak with the middle school and high school students. I, I love the Gospels. I think y'all know that. But, uh, you know, I, I got to speak from John 12. John 11 is the culminating miracle of John's Gospel, Lazarus raised from the dead. Imagine seeing Lazarus come out of the tomb after four days and there were people there who thought, hmm, I'm still not sure if I want to follow Jesus at this point. Four days and he comes out. My mother told me the other day, I'd never heard this story before, about four generations back in my family line, maybe five generations, late 1800s, they had a funeral out at an old country church on a hot day, and they'd waited a little bit too long to have that funeral, Larry. They didn't have, you know, didn't have services and some of the things we got now. And between the heat and some of the other things, rigor mortis set in, and the person set up out of that casket, two minutes, that whole church was clear. They got everybody out of that building. <laughs> Went running for every exit, some exits they didn't know they had, and they got people out of those exits. Four days later, Lazarus walks out of the tomb, and there are people who say, I'm not willing to yield to Jesus. And the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you read it in John 11 and John 12, and they met together to say, it's time we kill him. Not only him, but Lazarus as well. Because Lazarus is guilty of coming back to life. And you think, how in the world could you do that? The writer of Hebrews is driving home that same point. Our people have been guilty, perhaps at the point this letter is written, something like a generation or a little bit less than a generation before. We were the ones who cried out, give us Barabbas and his blood be upon us and on our children. We were the ones who saw and witnessed what Jesus did and we still chose to destroy him even though they couldn't destroy him. And ultimately, that was God's plan all along. But they rejected Jesus vehemently. And so the writer of Hebrews is also continuing this tone to say, we're doing it all over again. And we will find no life there. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, there it is, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? To trample underfoot. Number three on the back. Once again, we got a backside tonight. Those of you who have thought we were done, Hate to break it to you. We got a few more to go through. Number three, to reject Jesus is to trample as worthless the sacrifice that he made. To reject Jesus is to trample as worthless the sacrifice that he made. I have a memory from high school 
sort of burned in my brain. Some of y'all, you know, I'm getting old enough too that some of that stuff that's way back, I remember better than the stuff that happened yesterday. You know, some of y'all with me on that? I have this memory from high school of my dad making airline captain. He got to do that a couple times with all the airline up and down through September 11th and all that kind of thing. But I remember him making airline captain and we went out to celebrate. We went to the Outback. Now, some of y'all are real high class people in here. For me, Outback's about as good as it gets. So you just go with me if you think, well, that's not my place. But for us, Outback is a, is a really good meal. Nowadays, I, I told somebody earlier, every Wednesday night, you know, my family will tend to have a meal that works for everybody. Usually it's either McDonald's, Arby's, or Little Caesars pizza. So the Outback sounds real good. We went to Outback and uh, I can remember being there that night and we were in a season where we'd gotten a chance to eat out a pretty good bit and I just wasn't really as appreciative that night as I should have been. It didn't cost me a dime. I'm sure I had a great steak, had a blooming onion. Anybody? Mm. Enjoyed all that, came home and just was about as ungrateful as a mouthy teenager could be. And I have this memory stuck in my brain of my dad sitting in the living room with his head hung down. He tried the best he could to give us a really special night for something he'd worked really hard for and given up a lot for so that he could do that for our family. And I'd been pretty ungrateful. And even as a mouthy teenager realized I needed to apologize. And what in the world was I complaining about the Outback Steakhouse for? I look back now and think, what was wrong with me? How much more our Father in heaven for sinful creatures who gave His one and only Son to leave glory, position in heaven and to empty Himself, Philippians 2 says, and to come to the earth to wrap Himself in human, broken, injured flesh and to walk. Listen, some of us wouldn't stay in the hotels that we see on the side of the highway. Jesus went to first century Israel and lived there with no toothbrushes, no soap, kind of life most of us wouldn't be willing to live and He left heaven to go there. And he lived a sinless life, and he died in our place. And he rose again, defeating death and hell once and for all. Everything we sang just a moment ago. And there were those who said, well, you know, if it's not convenient, I'm just not sure I'm willing to fully accept that. And so the writer of Hebrews says, you are trampling what God's done. That when you are saying the fulfillment of every promise that's ever been made the completion of every task, the dotting of every I and the crossing of every T of every scriptural promise since the beginning of time is not good enough for me. I'm just going to go backwards and do things the way we've always done them. The writer of Hebrews says, you are trampling and stepping on Jesus as if he's nothing. Number four, the choice of whether God is our greatest ally or our greatest enemy depends on whether we've accepted the free gift that only Jesus offers. The choice of whether God is our greatest ally or our greatest enemy depends on whether we've accepted the free gift that only Jesus offers. Sometimes in our day and age, we want to present the Lord Jesus consistently, almost as a pushover at times if we're not careful. We balance trying to communicate the free offer of grace that continues our entire life as long as we draw breath. 
for any of those who will come, whosoever will may come. You even read in the last pages of the book of Revelation that promise that reaches all the way back to Isaiah 55, you who have no money, come. All of you. It's not about your credentials. It's not about what you bring to the table, the free offer of the gospel that's extended to everyone. But if we're not careful, we stay on that so much that what we'll fail to communicate is what the writer of Hebrews here communicates. For we know, verse 30, him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so for us to set ourselves against the Lord is the last place where we want to find ourselves. And there will be consequences to that. To walk away from Jesus, I don't simply mean eternally. I'm I'm talking about the idea and understanding of saying that for us in our life, if we're to say, I'm I'm totally rejecting the Lord, I want nothing to do with him, there's going to be consequences that happen in that way simply because of our unwillingness to accept the offer of grace uh, into our lives. There's a way in which if we're desiring to be the enemy of God, there are times in which he will give us exactly what we're asking for. And that's what we... Don't need. Some of you have got kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, neighbors, friends, coworkers, and they're walking that path right now. They can't figure out why everything seems so hard and nothing goes right, and they're just walking through one bad circumstance, bad decision, whatever it might be after another. And they've chased down every other street looking for happiness or fulfillment and wanting people to stay you know, off their back and let them do what they want, but all it keeps running to is a dead end, and nothing's there. And so the warning comes down from Hebrews, and we dare not miss that warning, that it never benefits anyone to set themselves against the Lord. And sometimes God will use that action exactly to bring them to faith. Other times, there'll be a difficulty that comes along the harder and harder people's hearts get. I think I mentioned two weeks ago, as Pastor Brandon's leading us through this series in Exodus on Sunday mornings, we will see 10 times the language used that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We will see also 10 times the language used that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so if you're trying to make an enemy of the Lord, the worst thing he could do is allow you to have exactly what you're asking for. And there will be times in which the hardening of our own heart uh, will also be something that the Lord even allows that will lead Uh, to wrong places, difficult places. And then the writer pivots in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one? You know, sometimes in our Christian life, we got to go back, don't we? Now, not always. The answer for everything is not nostalgia and we always do things this one way or whatever, you know. But at times, isn't it, isn't it true in our life that we kind of, you ever come to that point where you say, I didn't used to have this bad attitude. This didn't used to be so hard. I, I wasn't so cynical about everybody this time or that. You know, I would trust people a little bit more in this time frame or that time frame. You know, I, did, I wasn't so quick to think the wrong things or to, you know, you ever have that? Where you say, God, what happened to my heart? That my heart's so hard right now. And I remember when I trusted you. I remember when my worship wasn't tainted by the things that are going through my mind. I remember, Lord, when things were in a better place. 
And sometimes we've got to kind of look backward to go forward and, and say, Jesus, you're going to have to, I know you hadn't left me. I must have walked away from you. I need to make it back where you are. Help me. Number five, do you remember what you could walk through when Jesus was at the center? Do you remember what you could walk through when Jesus was at the center? Do you remember when faithfulness and obedience was a blessing and not a grudging thing? Remember when service was a gift, not an obligation? You remember what it was like when there was just joy in knowing Jesus, following him, and seeing what he would do? You know, at times in our life, our hearts can get kind of cold and I think God would give that same word to us. Has there been something you've lost? Has there been a way that you've cooled off in your desire to understand the goodness of God? You know, when we try to serve out of obligation, when we try to obey the Lord out of guilt or something like that, we don't ever get joy out of that. At least if we do, that's out of the grace of God. That's not the formula he's designed to prosper. Where he's called us into is to recognize what the gift is to know Christ that Jesus has set me free. I'm free indeed. And so anything that I get to do for him, that's a blessing. I can't believe he would use someone like me. I can't believe that he would do this or that. Do you remember what you could walk through when Jesus was at the center? Our time's going away quickly, so let's go ahead and get to number six. The writer of Hebrews uses this word to describe Jesus here in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Number six, our confidence, who is Christ, enables our endurance through the Spirit's work so that our Father's reward, eternity, may be ours. Our confidence, who is Christ, enables our endurance through the Spirit's work so that our Father's reward, eternity, may be ours. That Jesus is our confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. It's important once again to revisit the reality that I don't believe there's anywhere in the Bible where what is taught is that those who have been truly saved, truly taken hold of, truly been rescued and redeemed and saved by the Lord Jesus can lose that salvation. And so understand, in the context of what's being said here tonight, the writer of Hebrews is not writing to the people to say, hey, if you go away, you're going to lose that salvation that you had. What I believe he is saying to them is saying, look, if you trusted and you understood what you have accepted, if God has done a real work in you, this is not going to be evident in your life. This is not what you're ultimately going to do, but your perseverance is going to point backwards to the fact that God truly saved you. First John chapter two, they went out from us because they were never of us. And they went out from us in order to show they were never of us. And so the writer here saying that don't throw away your confidence. With Jesus, we can have confidence. And without Jesus, we have no reason to be confident. Do not so quickly throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that the spiritual life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Now, some of you might say, I'm not sure I have real excited about a marathon. But a movement in one direction over a great amount of time. Let me say it this way. Psalm 1, 
He who delights himself in the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water, brings forth its fruit in season. I've never gotten a chair and gone outside and watched the trees grow. It's a slow process. It takes time. But the faithfulness of God is shown, and what's at the root is revealed. Our confidence, who is Christ, enables our endurance. And it's that where we find the Spirit's work. It's not from us, so that our Father's reward, eternity, may be ours. And then there's some Old Testament quotations that are given there from verse 37 and 38. Those are a combination of some words that are in Isaiah as well as some from Habakkuk. And it says here, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Do you notice the two things that are pitted against one another? Shrinking back is the counterpart of what word? Faith, that's right. Not that shrinking back is a lack of whatever perfect moral standard you wanna put up there, no. The difference maker in whether or not we are shrinking back is whether we have faith in Christ Jesus. Not only once and for all for salvation, but faith that continues to draw us day by day to that reality that Jesus is enough, that he's got me, that he's taken care of me, that I can trust him. Shrinking back then is a lack of faith, number seven, in he who is our hope. We who are in Christ are not of those who shrink back. There's this um, scene in one of the movies that Pastor Brandon and I like, The Return of the King from the Lord of the Rings movies. And there's this scene where the king, who's about to lead them in this really dark, tough battle, gathers in front of this whole army, and he's gathered them together, but this army's way is outnumbered by the forces of darkness that they're getting ready to run into. And he begins to do that thing on the horse where you're trying to keep your men from running the other direction and getting them to go into battle. And he begins to talk to him and he says something along these lines. He says, you know, there may come a day when the strength of men fails, when we abandon all bonds of brotherhood and we run in the other direction. There may come a day that is so dark where shields are breaking and the end and ruin of all mankind. And then he looks at each one of them and he says, but it is not this day. Today we fight. The writer of Hebrews gives that same encouragement. As he issues a warning, as he issues a calling, he makes this great truth to them, but we are not those who shrink back. And so in the Christian life, when you've got those moments where you want to let go of faith, when you want to stop trusting the Lord, be reminded that ultimately all of us have failings and ways where we need the grace of God. Thankfully, Jesus is enough. Don't shrink back from him. Hold on to him. There's an illustration that I've used that's on your paper there. Every time I get to sit down, particularly with a young child, about what it's going to be like for them, because for some of them, as they've come to faith, maybe 9, 10, 11 years of age, some of them think any number of different things. I've sat down with a number of kids through the years who got in trouble real bad at home, and they felt like they needed Jesus' forgiveness so that they'd never do anything wrong again. 
And so as they come to faith in Christ, as they're able to verbalize the gospel, for all of us, this is something when we come to Christ that we really have to wrestle with, this idea, I've been delivered, and yet at the same time, I will one day be fully delivered, and I'll still need His grace, and I'll still need His forgiveness. This is an illustration. I don't know where it originally originated, but it sort of shows really well the idea that when someone comes to faith in Christ, Jesus as the light of the world and the light in our life as well, that light in our hearts and in our lives will continue to do something all of the time in which we know the Lord Jesus and walk with Him. Number one, the longer we know Jesus, the greater light is going to be shined on the holiness and goodness of God. You know more about the holiness and goodness of God today if you've been walking with Him for a little while than you did when you first came to know Him. That doesn't mean that you didn't know enough to trust in Jesus, but it did mean that as you've been brought along by the work of the Holy Spirit, you know even more now about the goodness and righteousness and holiness of God than you did at the beginning. But what that light will also show in light of His glory and grace and everything else is there'll be a greater light that reveals just how much we fall short. There's going to be a light to where we are able to see the closer that we get to the Lord Jesus, the darkness of our own heart more and more. And sometimes for the folks who are the most discouraged and most overwhelmed with their sin, that means that Jesus is actually doing the greatest work in their heart because often the people who are far from God are the ones who say, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with me. But if you've drawn closer to Jesus, there is this light that as He continues to work on each one of us, we see the depths of our own need for grace, our own need for rescue, our own need for forgiveness more than we did before. And what happens in the life of a believer when we have trusted in Christ and when the Holy Spirit is doing this work on the inside of us, in light of God's holiness and in light of our own sinfulness, what will happen as the years go by is that the cross will grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is a wonderful thing in our sight. For all that we cannot be, it's not our hope that we would grow larger while the cross stays the same, that the cross finished its work on May 19th, 1986, or whatever day it was that you came to faith in Christ. No. Jesus saved you on that day where you trusted in Him and put your faith in Him. And each day He is continuing to save you. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes of that great hope that we have, the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. One of these days, he's going to save you once and for all, sin and death defeated and gone forever. And until then, the cross of Jesus Christ in the life of a believer will continue to grow greater and more precious and more wonderful and more sufficient. So be assured, Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that my hope is not my sinlessness because I would have no hope. Lord, for each of us in this room, may we also have the cross of Jesus Christ to grow greater, more wonderful, more sufficient and larger in our hearts, our sight. And may the goodness of Christ continue to draw us in so that we might walk more and more faithfully with Him. We praise You and thank You. In Jesus' name, amen.